Suddenly there's much doubt that we now live officially in the age of outrage. You think about it, you look around at how many people say they're just itching for a fight. They really kind of trigger a debate in some way, look at it and say, you know, I'm, this is right, this is wrong, this is how we're going to deal with that. It can happen over any sort of issue. It can happen over a prom dress. We're about 18-year-old Keziah Down who was looking for the perfect dress for her prom. Said she wanted something that was unique, something that was bold, something that had meaning. So she went shopping at a vintage store in downtown Salt Lake City, and she found this dress. It's a, it's a traditional Chinese dress called a chun sham. It had a modest style, high neck, difficult to find in prom dresses. She loved that, so she went to prom. She posted pictures on Instagram, and that's when the trouble started. The Chinese man named Jeremy Lamb got outraged when he saw these pictures, and he turned to Keziah, who he did not know, my culture is not your blankety-blank prom dress. And that tweet began an online debate about the intersection between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation from those who maybe not Chinese. And it went viral. Over 100,000 comments on Keziah's Instagram and Twitter feeds, many of them, many of them really nasty kind of comments. And this shifted quickly from a discussion about right and wrong about a progress to, to right and wrong about who Keziah was as a person herself. Now, why did this become a thing? It became a thing because people love to define what matters for themselves and in the end just want to be proven right. Just want to be vindicated, I'm right. Now, you and I can get into the same sort of right and wrong discussions, whether it's online or in real life. We have these kind of discussions all the time. Who's the greatest player? Is it LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Do we build a border wall or not? Do you like the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe better? Is it buy or lease, marriage or divorce, burial or cremation, government regulation or free market? You look at all of Now, obviously, some of those are trivial, others are substantive, but in every consideration of setting a standard, something uh, right and wrong, depends on establishing a standard that we're going to look at it by. Facts, opinion, experience, morality. Everybody has an inner standard by which we measure right and wrong. And the same thing is true when we enter discussion of things that are spiritual or moral or ethical or anything that has to do with God. We all bring a standard into that discussion about who we think God is and what we think God's standards are on issues that matter. It's really important for us to know what God's standards are. That's important. But there's something even more crucial than being right about an issue. And that is being right about who you are as a person before God. Now, that's been a consistent theme on our journey throughout Psalm 1. If you have your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to open it and turn to Psalm 1. It was the very first Psalm, and walking our way through that. And then we're looking at good news that God blesses. And here's how we define God's blessing. That blessing is God's intentional, active application of His good to the lives of people and their joy in experiencing it. Now, we've not been numbering all the blessings of God. We don't have time to do that. We're exploring the sort of life that God blesses. Two sorts of life. One sort of life leads toward God's blessing. His application is good, and a sort of life that does not. I want you to listen to those discussions again. Would you stand to honor the reading of God's Word? Ryder's going to come and read it for us this morning. And so let's hear together from Psalm 1. 
just a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. May be seated. Thank you, Ryan. Hey, listen to those distinctions here that you begin to hear. On the one side, there are the scoffers, those that are sinners, and those are the words of sinners of chaff, that which is lifeless, fruitless, nothing to it. And the summary word is wicked. On the other hand, there are people who have a personal relationship with God. They order their lives by God's word. They're, they're faithful to Him. And the word of sinners is the tree planted by streams of water. The summary word there is blessed. But then you come to, to, to verse 5, and it says, therefore, and that's a, that's a term of conclusion, so I'm going to wrap this up and summarize. Now, until now, these two ways of living have been described in the present tense, but it's not just living that on an endless, endless loop. At some specific point in the future, God will, will blow the trumpet, he'll call time on life on earth, and at that moment, every single person, will, there will be an evaluation or a judgment on what we have done with our one and only life. And in that moment is when this crucial question will be raised. Am I right as a person with God, before God? Now, this word righteous is what we have, we've just now seen, and this emerges in the context of judgment, but it's a Bible word that we throw around a lot and we don't use a lot in our everyday world. As a matter of fact, the way we most often hear it in our world today is of somebody who would say, oh, they're self-righteous. So they're kind of arrogant, maybe legalistic, maybe a little bit hypocritical to put all those things together. But this is a huge term throughout the Scriptures. So look at the, all the Bible, here's how we can define righteous. That righteous means that one's conduct and character measures up to God's perfect standard of what is good, beautiful, and true. So it's the standard, this is what it means to be right by God's standard. When we look at that. So at that time, there will be these two groups. One that will not meet the standard and be excluded one that will meet the standard and will be a part of what's described there in verse 5 as the congregation or the gathering of the righteous who will be blessed forever. So we want to know, don't we, how can we make sure that we're a part of the blessed on that day? We're going to get to that in time, but there's an important truth before we get there, and that's this, that this congregation or gathering of the righteous already exists. It exists now. We call it the church. The people of God is an inner relationship with God through Christ. So here's the question we want to wrestle with. How do ordinary people like you and me get righteous, stay righteous, and move ourselves in a place of blessing now and forever? So let's look at this and see. First thing I want you to see is this. That God's righteous people, the church, are blessed by their position, by their life in Christ. Remember, we define righteous by the one who meets the standard of all that is good and beautiful and true. But his standard is perfection in those areas. Jesus said this in Matthew. He said, he said, you must be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that's a that's a pretty high standard when you think about it. That you got to be perfect. So that means you got to be perfect in what you say. You got to be perfect in what you do. You got to be perfect in patience. You got to be perfect in all these things. You got to find a way to be perfect in your attitude, in the things people see, in the things people don't see, in the things that are internal to you, in your family, at your workplace, at your school. There's this standard of perfection in all these ways, and it's a really high standard that God has called us to to begin to live up to that. And here's what we know. On their own, no human being is righteous. If you and I honestly measure ourselves by God's high standard of perfection in those areas, we will always fall short. Romans 3 puts it this way. It says, there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. Not one does good. Not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and nobody measures up to that very high standard of God's righteousness. Now, it's not for, for lack of trying. We will many times try to climb that in our own way, and in our, in, our own, uh, in our own way we'll try to make that happen, kind of do our own, our own righteousness. So we might try to say, okay, look, I, I know I can't make you do that, but here, here's why I can be moral. I can begin to live my life by the way God has uh, means me to. I'm going to kind of follow all the rules and do that. And I'll make sure I kind of have my family together. Things will be good. Try to make sure, you know, my kids don't end up criminals. I'm going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. That'll be good. Or maybe we might say, I'm going to, I'm going to add to that. I'm going to add a little religion. I really need to make sure that I'm, I'm, I try to go to church on Sundays. I try to do the religious thing, do the religious rituals. Maybe I know the Bible. I can read the Bible some. Try to read the Bible as much as I can. Know it, understand it, those kind of things. Others might say, hey, look, I know what God wants is what's good for people. So I'm going to give myself to influence uh, my community. I'm going to serve. I'm going to leave an influence in my business and my involvement, my engagement, my giving, I'm going to be a person who makes a difference where I live. And some folks might just say, hey, look, I'm just going to do my best to be uh, a nice person. I'm going to be a good neighbor. I'm going to be helpful. I'm going to be who my mother always told me I was supposed to be. You know, I'm going to be all these things that I'm going to do that. But here's, here's the thing. We do that. We try that. And here's what happens. On my best day, your best day. Let's say you get up in the morning, and, and you get up, and the first thing you really do, you, you begin to pray, and you open your Bible, and you read. And it's your Bible, and you do that on that day. And that day happens to be in Leviticus, and you don't skip it. <laughs> you read it, right? And so you stay, and you read that, and you go to work, you try to do it as nicely as you can, try the best you can to make that, and try to live that way, and try to respond the best way you can, and then, and really try not to get hand signals to the guy that cuts you off in traffic. I mean, it's a good day for you. You're doing really, really well. And, and here's the thing on my best day, your best day, when I have everything together about my life, I will still fall short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. Because His holiness, His righteousness is so far above what we understand and what we might be able to know. And so it puts us in a little bit of trouble. But it's even worse than that. It's worse than that. Because not only do we have the positive things that we try to do that aren't necessarily enough, on the other side of the coin, there is that all of us kind of carry around in our own mind and our own heart. We kind of have a, a moral kind of spiritual scorecard. 
So you see, you can put, you can put your, I'll put the name of my disciple here. Oh, we'll just call him David. Okay? This is insert your name here, right? And you think about, oh, well, you know, there was that time when I probably lost my temper and I shouldn't have. I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church and maybe that wasn't quite so sacrificial. There's a person in my workplace that needs me to listen. I was, I was just too busy or I was prompted to talk about Jesus with somebody, but I, but I didn't do that. I lost that. And I watched some stuff probably I shouldn't have on television. And, and we begin to see where we stand in terms of what God's requirements and what God's call, and each of us every day are adding to our moral, spiritual scorecard, and there are marks against it in that way. And here's the thing that's terrifying about that, that just one of those across the course of a lifetime would disqualify us from meeting God's perfect standard of righteousness. Just one of those marks across the course of a lifetime. So, so this all on our positive side and our negative side puts us outside of a relationship with, with God. How are we ever going to meet God's perfect standard? It's not in us. So we're going to need help from somebody else. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came. Why did he come? He came to people who were spiritually messed up. Here's what he said. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus said, I came for unrighteous people. I came for bottom-rung, scorecard-filled people. That's who I came for. That's who I came to try to put right. Now, what did he do? Jesus lived the life that we would not live. And so what we see about Jesus is we look at, we look at Jesus' life and who he is, that Jesus also has a scorecard. And the Bible says that he never sinned, although he is tempted in all ways just as we are. It also says that Jesus always did exactly what his heavenly Father wanted him to, which meant at every moment of his life, he was perfectly meeting God's high standard of righteousness. He was perfect in what he did. He was perfect in what he avoided, doing the things that were against God. He was absolutely perfect in all those ways. So, we say it this way, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, that's true. What was happening there? In that moment, Jesus was providing a way for you and I to change the status of our righteousness standing before God. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now in Him, that's crucial that we're in Him. Now, what happens on the cross is this miraculous, divine exchange. Jesus comes. He became sin for us. So Jesus takes my scorecard, your scorecard, and puts His name on that and bears the penalty for every one of those acts of sin and rebellion against God. But it's not just that. On the other side, if He takes his scorecard and gives it to us, we can have our name written on this perfection that is there, and he gives that to us in place. So when God looks at us, God sees nothing against us because it's been paid for already by Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. 
This is why we delight in Him and who He is and what He has done. Now, how does this become real for us? How do we receive this in that way? Paul described this way. He said, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he's saying, I'm going to repent. I'm going to count everything as lost and garbage. Everything I'm trying to do, this is all garbage that help me at all. The only thing I can do is run to Christ and trust Him. I'm not going to have a righteousness of my own that I can work up, but I'm going to have a righteousness that He's given me that's perfect. I'm going to completely depend on Him. This is where righteousness starts for us. If you have, if we've trusted Christ, our position, our standing vertically with God is that we have life in Christ. This is our identity. This is who we are. In Christ, we trust Him. We are righteous. That's settled. Nothing can change that. We don't have to work up anything else to make that work. It's a settled issue. So, so we're blessed because of our position, our life in Christ. But this vertical relationship righteousness was never meant to be a one-time religious action that just takes care of our sin problem forever. It was intended to spread out and spill out horizontally into our living day to day. So the second idea here is that God's righteous people, the church, are blessed by their practice, by their life like Christ. Now here's the idea, that who we are is meant to shape how we live. Who we are in Christ is meant to shape how we live. That's clear, though often missed, in one of the best loved passages in all the Bible. It's the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Don't miss this. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me to live my life down paths that perfectly match God's standard of all that is good, beautiful, and true, because that's the kind of life that brings Him glory, that displays who He is. The shorthand of this is, this is a life like Jesus. This is what we call the Christian, the Christian life. But let's understand, this life of living righteously out of who we are is not the yellow brick road full of, full of, of giggles and daisies and butterflies. It's not. We're immersed in an unrighteous world full of people and systems and culture and politics and media and entertainment that war against God's ways. We have a spiritual enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, take everything out of God's, uh, of God's goodness. And we still battle our own flesh, our own tendency to be self-defined and self-pleasing and those kind of things. So here's what I want you to understand. that living a righteous life day-to-day will not happen by passive religion. In other words, it's not just, hey, I live a normal life like everybody else I know, except I have a Sunday morning church habit, right? That's not righteous living. Righteous living is not just, I'm going to live the same traditions I've gotten before from people before me. That's not righteous. I'm going to live by a certain set of rules. That's not righteous living either. To live a righteous life that matches God's standard of good, beautiful, and true means we have to fight to be shaped by the same gospel that saved us. 
Now, Jesus made this very clear. He said, if you're going to follow me, let him deny himself, take him his cross daily, and follow me. Deny yourself. Stay no to yourself. Take up your cross. Live into his mission, even to the point of death, and follow him wherever he leads, whatever he asks, and those kind of things. Now, Peter was one of Jesus' inner circle, and he really struggled with this, this whole idea. You may remember, he, he fell asleep with Jesus while Jesus was praying. He, he denied even knowing Jesus. He was always kind of sticking his foot in his mouth. But those failures led over time, he came to see a, another truth. So when he wrote a letter later on, here's what he said. He said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now remember that pair in that order. Died of sin, lived to righteousness. Because Paul makes this really clear over in Romans 6. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now you hear this when we do our baptisms every week. The idea that we died to Christ, we are coming alive in him, but the idea was that that means we're going to live a new and different kind of life. So how does that work? What, what looks like that? If we die with Christ, we believe we also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also, that's us who know Him already, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There it is again. Same thing Peter said. Dead to sin, alive to God. Consider yourself. That's an accounting word. Count it up in such a way, and maybe even verbally say it, you know. 21 minus 7 is 14. 7 minus 5 is 2. And we say it out loud. Count it. Consider it. Consider the reality of it. Consider yourself dead, non-responsive, non-engaging in any kind of way. Now, when you get that in your mind, then you hear what he says next. Do not present your members, that's your life as it is, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness that He can use to spread His good, beautiful, and true into the world through us. How's put all that together? How does this work? I'm, I'm right in God this way. I want to live it out in my life every single day. Here's what's going to happen: the righteous person, every one of us, going to be presented with a temptation. It's an opportunity to do something against what God wants. And with the sin, there always comes a promise of something. Usually that you'll feel better if you do. So you got that smoke, smiling guy at work. <laughs> and the temptation is, I know just the thing to say. I have just the words. I can cut him down to size and leave him, and that'll be great. I'll feel so much better, and he'll be outed. And somebody who's not all he says he is, that'll be, that'll be great. Or maybe you have anxiety. You say, I'm going to work harder, I'm going to do more, because I've got to control my world where I am. Maybe you have a relationship. Uh, you're married, but you have a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex. And that relationship makes you just feel special. And you kind of keep inching closer and closer in there. Or maybe you're tired and depressed and stressed. And for you, if you just, if you just watch porn for a little while late at night by yourself, or, or you take a drink, or those pills or you overeat a little bit, or you go shopping and spend some money, that'll give you some relief. You'll feel better. All of those things are the promises of sin. They're all lies. So when presented with those, what do we do? We consider ourselves dead to it. 
We don't present ourselves to it. I'm dead to it. So I'm going to name it that sin. That's not good. And here's what I'm going to realize. My Jesus bled and died to rescue me from that sin. I have his life in me, and this sin does not match. I'm alive in Christ, so I'm dead to that. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to engage my heart. I'm not going to step an inch of my toe down that road. I'm not going to go there. Maybe want to talk to it. Jesus did. It was a get behind me, Satan. Sin, we're not going there. We're not going to do that. So you're considering yourself dead to sin, but what? Alive in Christ. Now you're going to present yourself to God. I'm yours. I really want to obey you in this. And what do you do? You remind yourself that the promises that Jesus has given in the gospel are better promises than sin ever gives you. The promises are better. They're more beautiful and good. So you remember, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. That Jesus will satisfy every longing of my heart. That there's a rest deeper than sleep. There's a peace that passes understanding. There's a hope that never fades. He says, your love is better than life, better than anything else that can be offered. So Proverbs says this. It says, in the path of righteousness is life. In its way, there is no death. So I'm going to consider death live to Christ in that way. This is how you live a righteous life. You wake up every day, begin to face sin and its lies, you consider yourself dead to them, you run to Jesus and gospel promises, and, and maybe you do that every hour on the hour. Maybe you do that every 15 minutes, maybe every 10 minutes. All day, every day, that's what you do. You get to bed at night, you thank the Lord for getting you through the day, you go to sleep, you wake up tomorrow, and you do the same thing all over again. Until you go home. That's the way this works. This is a part of what the Bible means when it says, the righteous shall live by faith. I'm going to live my days by faith, by confidence in Christ and His promises and what He's provided. It's a daily thing. Until we get home, we're going to have to fight for the gospel that saves us to shape us. You place different sins in different seasons. Some you'll get stronger at. Some will show up when you don't realize it. But it matters that we fight for righteousness because this is the reputation of Jesus. As we live lives, we bear His name. Our life living this way in our communities with our families, that's the reputation of Jesus. And all that He is, what He means for us to do, and that's the life that He blesses. So our life is right this way. We get to live it right this way. And we get this final promise that He gives. We're going to be blessed because of the promise life with Christ. And we full circle back to verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And we've established who the righteous are, but the wicked and the sinners are going to be excluded from that. This is a sobering verse on so many levels. Those who are unrighteous have shown no inclination for a relationship with God and run away from Him. They scoff, refuse to bow their knee to Him. They gauge their life by their own standard of what's right and what's wrong instead of God's. They will appear before the Holy Almighty King of the Ages on their own merits, just with this. So all they're going to have is say, look, I did good with my life. Look what I did with my life. 
And since unholy and unrighteous cannot occupy the same space as the holy and righteous, they will bow in submission and then face an eternity in torment separated from the good, beautiful, and true of God. So Revelation says this, it says, outside are the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood, defining life by yourself. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. It's an awful thing to consider. But for those who are His, there's a distinctly better future promise for Christ's righteous family, the church. We tell God's story here all the time. There's creation, there's fall, there's rescue, and the final chapter is what? Restoration, right? Here's how it's described in Second Peter. According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this new earth God promises he's going to create. Restore everything as God intended, and it will be utterly right. Now think about this. The world he's pointing us to, all the wrong will be made right. All this upside down will be flipped right side up. All sin and evil and wickedness and cruelty will be banished because love will fill every corner. Every sad story will come untrue. Every tear will turn to laughter. Every grief to joy. Every limp to dancing. Every sickness will give way to, to vigorous health. Every death will give way to life like we've never imagined. We're so alive like we've never imagined before. The environment of that new world, every inch is going to be immersed in righteousness. It's going to perfectly meet God's standard of what is good and beautiful and true. Peter says righteousness dwells there. What is there, it dwells there. So, yes, the righteous will be on the throne, but there's more. He's going to gather a family with him from, from all over, every tribe and tongue and people and nation, the congregation of the righteous. Those who have entered a relationship with God through Christ, those who live that out as a confirmation of their relationship, they'll be with him forever and forever. That's us. And he says in that day we're going to celebrate that and see that, and then we're going to delight in who he is and describe to those righteous people as being dressed in fine linen as the righteous deeds of the saints. So we're going to guide this congregation. We're not going to be there in red silk prom clothes. We're going to be dressed in, in white that's going to signify our righteous standing before God, and we're going to enter heaven through the front gate because the righteous belong there. There's no debate. There'll be no outrage. Nobody can take that away. That's our certain hope. That's where righteousness leads, is right in His presence, right to who He is. So, there's lots of debates in the world today. Lots of things that people get right and wrong in that way. But this one is maybe the most rare of all, and I want you to deal with it this morning. Are you righteous? Are you right before God? What about your position? Do you have life in Christ? Are you depending on your scorecard or on His? Your ways or His? Maybe today is your day to turn from yours and depend on His and come here in a moment and kneel and pray and say, Lord, rescue me, and He will. He'll give you His life, and that great exchange will take place for you. What about your practice? Are you living the gospel you claim to believe? Is what you claim this way, showing up like this, in your business, in your words, in your attitudes, in your actions, 
and you want to come here and kneel today and just say, Lord, there's something here that's not like you that needs to be put to death starting right now. Begin to pray that. Are you living by the promise? Or are you so burned and consumed by the mess of the world? And maybe it's intended for you to live differently, to live a promise in that way. This is what he's called us to. You'll be together. We're going to link arms and walk it together. We're going to stumble. We're going to skin our knees and we're going to cry and we're going to laugh. We're going to cross that line together someday. Cheer it on. Because this is the life that God has always meant us to live that we would enjoy now and forever all of His heart that is good and beautiful and true. We stand together as we pray. So, Lord, we've seen and heard your gospel. We pray now, Lord, that you will help us to listen carefully to your heart as you're prompting us this moment. Lord, would you come and do your work in us so we may respond to your promptings. Get our position right with you. Get our practice right. These are the ways, these are the paths of righteousness that you have for us, and you pour out your good on us. So help us be obedient to your problems in this moment. We're grateful that you are our good, beautiful, and true Savior. Help us respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You come as we sing.